This episode of I Save That Podcast was made possible by Angiodynamics, the manufacturer of a small device that's guiding a big shift in patient care. Beam puts the power of a fast, flexible, cordless ultrasound in your hand and in your pocket. With the ability to scan patients and review images in seconds, Beam offers a practical and affordable way to enhance decision-making and help improve patient outcomes. For more information, please visit www.beamultrasound.us. Episode three of season two of the I Save That podcast from the Association of Vascular Access. This is Ramsey Nazarala with Ava. I'm joined by Eric Sager, the director of communications. And before we jump into see episode three, uh, how about episode two with with Andy Murray's two IVs in a cephalic vein? What did you think of that? Oh my gosh, that spread like wildfire. It's crazy how fast it went international with just a single tweet that we sent out. And then I thought that the conversation we had with what was it? 10 clinicians from three different countries the big I mean, table that was, or a round table that size that was nuts yeah it was excellent and i thought that everyone was displaying their passion really really smartly and smoothly and, and i loved every minute that i learned so much on that episode just listening to it and it's already has like more listens in it's been about a week since we recorded it than half of our episodes of season one. So right. it's definitely hit a nerve internationally. And I think that our conversation was great. Yeah, and the, the, the podcast series does very well. So we're talking about big numbers on top of big numbers. The conversation, and, and we recommend, you know, after you listen to, to episode three, you can go back and listen to that to episode two with, with the, the Andy Murray discussion. I personally gave interviews to, to newspapers from like several different continents. And the discussion yeah. on... Exactly. You know, was his vascular access care okay, or was it was it not okay? And it started to take a turn when a few things happened. One, uh, anesthesiology uh, began to to uncover that there is a disconnect between when lines are inserted, either under um, ambulatory circumstances or just for a procedure, and then the care and maintenance. Uh, and I think that conversation unfolded online with anesthesiologists saying, hey, we always do it this way. And people exactly. who work on the floors, clinicians on the floor saying, uh-huh, yeah, we know. <laughs> and, yeah, and right exactly created the opportunity to to start to bridge the, those things we had an mp from scotland on parliament uh take take the side of ava and saying hey you know this is these are people worth listening to and we started to really see that there's a lot that we can learn in, in having a, a cohesive and consistent standard of care from the operating theater onto the floors the other thing that i learned was that some people use the words clipping and shaving interchangeably. And when, mm-hmm. when we talk about clipping, yeah, clipping hair to reduce the puffiness underneath an occlusive dressing versus shaving it, which creates microabrasions and opportunities for infection, uh, we're not talking about that. We were talking about clipping. So uh, vocabulary matters. And, and I learned so much from that whole episode. I will tell you this, and before we jump into to episode three, that single tweet was seen by over 2 million people. And it's, it's incredible. It doesn't even take into account the stories run by the Telegraph, the Daily Mail, Inside Edition called, <laughs> wanted wanted to talk to yeah. us. I mean, we don't have measurables right. on the, the inorganic parts of that story, but organically, uh, it was a profound reach and, and a really exciting opportunity for Ava to, to advance education around best practice and vascular access. So we're glad that Andy Murray is safe. We hope that people got better and more aware about what uh, good looks like and also what Ava does. So Closing the book on episode two. Episode three is made possible by Angiodynamics with its disruptive and innovative medical devices, addressing unmet patient needs by elevating the standard of care for chronic and acute disease states in vascular, peripheral vascular, and oncology medicine. We've uh, had a relationship with Angio for for a long time. Uh, They have devices like uh, beam ultrasound and also the BioFlow catheter technology. They provide healthcare professionals around the world with vital tools they need to deliver high quality patient care and improve patient outcomes. Uh, Later in this episode, uh, we'll be talking with Jack Ingold, who is a clinical specialist at Angio about the importance of ultrasound and addressing divas. Also the considerations of the cost of failure with those those difficult patients uh, to stick. And later on, Eric will be going behind the manuscript with Brent Burbridge uh, discussing Doppler ultrasound findings three months after an arm plant implantation. But now to kick off the episode, we've got uh, Stephanie Pitts, 
the global director of clinical marketing, who's going to tell us what we can expect from this interview with Jack Ingold. Steph, how are you? Hi, guys. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on today. Hey, Steph. Great to have Hi. you here. Why, why is ultrasound important, Steph? Let, let the people know. Yeah, I think, you know, at a high level, a couple of basics that I think we can all relate to as patients ourselves, right? You, you go to the hospital, nobody wants to be stuck with a needle. No. So having the, yeah, exactly. Having the ability to have visibility and actually watch your needle penetrate through the skin and directly into the vessel is, is important. So ultrasound ultimately reduces the number of sticks for patients. Lots of evidence on this, lots of guidance as well from many organizations. We know it reduces complications, lowers infection. And we also know that when, when healthcare providers use ultrasound, that their, their rate of success is dramatically increased. Right. Yeah. Great. That is a very high level. He's going to get into uh, the nitty gritty of exactly how ultrasound should be used. R remind me, should, should it only be used for divas or should all patients have ultrasound when they're getting a needle stuck into them? Yeah, it's a great, a great question, Ramsey. And I think when you look at the current clinical practice guidelines um, that are on, on this topic, they span many, many organizations, AVA, ENA, CDC, the American College of Emergency Physicians, NICE, our friends in the UK, anesthesiologists, um, the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine, INS, all of these organizations have really great guidance around the use of ultrasound. And to be honest with you, the guidance varies a little bit from being used with difficult patients to being used with, you know, short uh, peripheral catheters to PICC lines to CVCs. It varies. But I can tell you um, in my own practice as a pediatric clinician, the moment I picked up ultrasound and looked at the anacube that I had stuck blind for over 15 years, I, I won't ever stick blind again. You know, what you feel with your finger may feel like a vein, but what you see with ultrasound allows you to visualize the arteries and the nerves that are very close to those veins. So we definitely promote no blind sticks here with the AVA organization and with the Angiodynamics as well. Yeah, wow. So basically the, the reverse end of Star Wars, A New Hope, you should use that sort of guidance. <laughs> you should not use the force. Visual, visualization is everything. And Jack dives into what a diva is. He has a great conversation with Ken, which is up next. And we wanted to thank Stephanie for hopping on with us today to preview that interview with Jack Ingold from Angiodynamics. And as Ramsey noted earlier, a little bit later, I'll be talking to Brett Burbage about his upcoming Java article. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And please stay tuned. We're joined today by Jack Ingold. In 1994, Jack began his nursing career in the critical care setting and quickly learned the value of vascular access. He witnessed firsthand how reliable central access was often the catalyst for great outcomes by allowing efficient and reliable delivery of IV therapy. As a result, Jack became passionate about teaching ultrasound-guided pick insertion, which eventually led him to angiodynamics. Jack, how are you doing today? Uh, doing doing great. Uh, looking forward to uh, to talking with you today. Hi, this is Ken Symington, president of AVA for 2019, and I'm very happy to be on this podcast and in preparation for this podcast. Uh, as an interventional radiologist, I've learned a fair amount about uh, IV access, peripheral IVs, which uh, I always took as a given, which was wrong of me. And so I thank you for educating me. At this point, uh, Jack, I guess what I'd like to do is just start out with some uh, random questions uh, regarding your experience and your passions, and where do you think are some of the strengths and weaknesses of vascular access today in America? How's that sound? That sounds like a great question. You know, uh, this year's my 25th year in nursing, and it's amazing how fast it's gone by. I spent the first 12 years in a hospital setting, uh, started out in critical care, and then moved into vascular access and and really learned early on how uh, having a very reliable way of, of treating your patients with vascular intervention uh, is a, a catalyst to having a good day and getting off of my shift on time. You know, if I, if I lost an IV, I could pretty much hang up staying on schedule and ha ended up having to chart for hours after my shift was over and and just learned firsthand the value 
of vascular access devices and what it meant to treating people efficiently. I hear you. I hear you. Indeed. But let me start you with some questions. Um, so what are the challenges that you see with blind sticking? Now, that's a great question. You know, if we think about peripheral IV insertion, uh, you know, patient's care is initiated when we go in the hospital and draw their labs and, and start an IV to give them fluids or antibiotics or, or even pain medicine. And so the care begins with vascular access or it's delayed by vascular access not having it. And it uh, seems that the average patient now is coming in the hospital with a longer history of a chronic illness. You know, they're in and out many times per year. And the one thing that that we do see is vascular depletion. So uh, whereas you might have been able to start an IV on that patient years ago, uh, when they present, all the veins that are superficial are not available or not accessible any longer. And you can only go down deeper past the ones that you can palpate with ultrasound to be able to have successful first stick. Yeah, I found that in my own experience. You know, a lot, I was telling you before the broadcast began that a large part of my professional experiences with vascular depletion, they send people to me who are vascular depleted, and my goal is not to deplete them any further, but I couldn't agree with you uh, anymore. Uh, what you see isn't what you get in this world when it comes to vascular access. What do you think are the hazards of doing blind sticking? Well, you know, in addition to the to the obvious requirement of multiple attempts. Uh, there are there are things that are deeper down in the vasculature, like nerves, for example, and arteries that we could inadvertently hit. I think the the main issue that we're facing is the inefficiency. You know, when when we need to start that IV, currently the the blind way of doing it is you know, you're palpating with your fingers, you're trying to track the, the vessel, and some people are very good at doing this. And, and if they can see veins and they can palpate them and they can, they can achieve success on the first stick, then, then that is fine. The problem that we see is that even the best IV experts are limited to how deep they can palpate. And in most cases, that is uh, one centimeter. So, you know, the, the vessels that are one centimeter and, and more shallow than that get used up. And then they start to, you know, if you can't find those any longer, you start to guess anatomically or try multiple attempts, go and get another person to also try. And then after a couple of failures, you end up calling the person that's trained with ultrasound to come in and, and really see what's going on. And, and it might be that that patient uh, is not a candidate for peripheral IVs. There are some of those that are, that are out there, and, you know, we may need to escalate to another device like a midline or a pick line. Uh, but it also could mean that there is a vein that's just a little bit deeper that, the person was unable to palpate, and you have a really nice, larger, robust vein that you can put uh, a longer peripheral IV catheter in and achieve uh, success on the first stick and also uh, a vascular access line that will last and not infiltrate. And um, so the advantages of ultrasound are tremendous. Yeah, the way that I look at it. This ultrasound allows you to have much better vision than you would have otherwise, opening up many, many more possibilities, allowing you to make the very best decision that you can make for the patient when you determine which vein you're going to try to access. And we, you know, in interventional radiology have had that advantage uh, over many other specialties because we've been doing that ever since I can remember uh, because we use image-guided interventions for everything that we do. And I don't even remember the last time that I actually even attempted a, a blind stick on anybody of anything, including not just veins, but uh, kidneys, livers. It doesn't really matter. Biopsying, there's always some type of visualization that you need to utilize uh, if you want to be as successful as possible. 
So I think you're really on the right track here. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the evidence-based interventions that you're passionate about. You know, we've learned early on that something as simple as hand hygiene can be uh, very effective prior to a, uh, going into a patient's room, prior to performing a procedure, you know, so just, just something that simple. We also know that ultrasound visualization increases success. First-time success is, is much more achievable when you can see instead of guessing what you're doing. You know, one of the common places that we see peripheral IVs started, especially in emergency situations, is the antecubital fossa. And uh, we've learned that, that those IVs, while you might be able to insert them, uh, they, they typically don't last. They're hard to stabilize, and any flexion will uh, kink the peripheral IV catheter, so staying away from that area. Catheter-to-vein ratio is another one. We learned this firsthand with PICC lines. And, you know, just because you are really proficient with ultrasound and you can, you can physically fit a catheter in the vein, it doesn't mean that it's a smart thing to do. You know, we've learned that, that you need to really scrutinize the size of the catheter compared to the vein, and we want to have enough flow around the catheter so that we don't, we don't end up with an increased risk of venous thrombosis. Securing the site is another uh, great example of evidence-based intervention. You know, there's, there's many companies that make advanced dressings that will help stabilize that catheter. Any catheter that has a chance to move uh, certainly has a chance to uh, bring bacteria from out on the skin into and underneath and dislodging catheters that are so hard to get is uh, is really something that's frustrating for the person that's actually placing the line, but even more so, so for the patient. And then prompt removal of catheters. You know, we, we see that catheters typically don't get infected the first couple of days they're inserted, but later in the hospitalization after they've been utilized and there's a lot of intermittent in and out uh, access of that device, they have a much increased risk for infection. And uh, we certainly want to remove catheters. And all these things we've shown through studies, multiple studies that uh, they seem to work. And we just want to make absolutely sure that everything we do related even to ultrasound training is evidence-based. Those are really good points. Uh, excellent. Thanks. So that uh, really sums it up, I think, uh, in a nutshell. Let's change gears a little bit, and this is something that I had no idea about until I started to look into it and, and talk to a lot of my nurse colleagues, and this is the formal uh, a gap in formal education on vascular access. It always seems like it's somebody else's responsibility to train people how to do vascular access while they're in uh, school, particularly in, in nursing school. And I'd like to have you discuss that a little bit, if you don't mind, because I don't know how many people are really aware of how much finger pointing is going on, and as a result, how little people uh, have as far as a skill set goes when it comes to doing vascular access out of school. You know, it's a great question. I, I was actually thinking about this on my drive up to Virginia this morning, and, uh, you know, I went to, to nursing school and uh, a diploma school, and there's there's not a lot of those left. One of the things that that you notice if you meet a, a nurse who's from a diploma school is there there's a ton of clinical experience in those programs and and while we did learn vascular access uh, insertion in school and later when I graduated my department was a clinical rotation site for those nursing students to come through that is really not the case that we see in many institutions uh, there's educate there's evidence out there that 57% of people that were surveyed were not taught anything about how to start an IV in nursing school. So wow. when they come out on the floor, yeah, it's that's impressive. And uh, hospitals do have in many cases their own programs, but what we see that's lacking is the formality of it. You know, it's almost like. Everyone has an IV. There's 300 million of them placed, and we take it for granted that it's just something that you can learn by, you know, watching one, doing one, and then teaching one. And we believe that that, that while it might have been 
appropriate when patients were a little bit easier to stick. What we're facing right now and what we see uh, in our travels, which happens to be about 40 of the states in the United States, is that uh, we really do need a very specific education program, you know, related to insertion of vascular access devices, utilizing ultrasound soon and not after a couple of people have tried, and then you decide we'll bring the expert in. Just amazing what happens. I can't get over it. I think in the uh, earlier days, people were more accepting also. Patients were more accepting of when things didn't go right. But I think patients' expectations have improved as their knowledge base has improved a lot through the Internet and having to partially pay for their own health care now. And I think patient consumerism is a really important concept uh, as we move forward in trying to do what's best for the patients from the patient's eyes. Another topic that you began to discuss a little bit was the endocubital region and how that is and why that is not ideal for IV access. And this runs contrary to my early experience in medicine when that's where everybody had an IV placed. Right, exactly. You know, it, it's it's not that you can't insert a catheter in the anacubital region. It just so happens that that is where the veins surface, even even in some of the larger patients where you can't palpate anything in their forearms, you can certainly palpate in their anacubital. And while you might be able to insert that catheter, and even on the first attempt, uh, we find that many times in emergency situations, uh, that is what is done, and, and thank goodness for it. Uh, the problem is, you know, hours later, when that patient leaves the emergency department, they're, they're up on the floor and, and maybe some of the sedation is wearing off and they start to move their arm, uh, the catheters are actually made of, of a, a substance that kink. So that IV will no longer work as evidenced by the beeping alarm uh, pump alarms, and so that catheter will need to be replaced very quickly. In addition to that, uh, there are nerves. You know, most nurses that place uh, picks and midlines are certainly aware of the use of ultrasound, that there are multiple nerves that you could inadvertently hit. You know, a person that would try to attempt multiple times in the antecubital region uh, has a very high chance that they're going to hit one of these nerves. And the patient might not be able to tell you that. You know, if they're obtunded and, and they don't know, you could be causing damage without even knowing it. Uh, in yeah. addition to the arteries mm -hmm. that are there and the fact that it's a skin fold. So, you know, the bacterial cell count right there in the bend of the arm it's certainly a little bit harder clean that area prior to uh, inserting that device. So for many reasons, we would like to stay away from the antecubital fossa, if at all possible. Yeah, and there's some organizations, some associations out there that have uh, stated a position on that, correct, to substantiate what your point of view is? Absolutely. Uh, the latest INS uh, standards in 2016 and recommendation of avoiding areas of flexion for peripheral IV access. You know, uh, I imagine a common sense way to look at it would be if you if you have to save someone's life and they're right there in front of you and it's the only thing you can do, you got to save their life. But, you know, you really want to stay away from it if you can. Thank you for that. Good points. Let's talk about the DIVA. What is a DIVA? That's an acronym that I really didn't know much about until about a year ago. And who is a DIVA? And why is that so important in vascular access? So uh, DIVA, I just heard that acronym a, a few years back. And and unlike many acronyms that you can't really understand uh, what they mean, a DIVA is, uh, is, is pretty easy to understand. And that is a difficult IV access patient. You know, for many reasons, people become difficult to start peripheral IVs. One of the things that's uh, pretty obvious is we have a growing population, and uh, and I don't mean just in the size. Patients are getting larger and larger, and and uh, as they do, and obesity is a is a major health concern that we 
have to be honest about, but it's also a major concern when you are tasked to place a peripheral IV. You know, those veins are are covered by adipose tissue, and the ones that are deeper than one centimeter can no longer be palpated. That's one of the first obvious patient populations that we look at. Uh, there's another patient population that, that are, have chronic illnesses. You know, if, if we look at the many advances in healthcare and what it means to patients with chronic illnesses is that they're alive today, whereas 10 or 15 years ago, you take the same illness and they wouldn't be alive. So, you know, we meet patients now that have been in and out of hospitals for 10 or 15 years. And the one thing that the common denominator among these patients is uh, vascular depletion specifically the ones that are superficial, the ones that, you know, someone could have seen or someone could have palpated and uh, and used. And so that's a huge patient population now that we need to look at an alternative measure to uh, insert their device, and ultrasound is the perfect tool to use for that. Sadly, there's another patient population that's an epidemic right now, and that is IV drug users. Some of the most challenging patients that we face for vascular access are the IV drug abusers and, and what those uh, drugs have done to their vasculature and the multiple sticks. Uh, sometimes there's not even one vessel left that we can find. So we have to go straight to ultrasound on those patients. So those are really the big three that that we think of as being the difficult IV access patients. Certainly there are others and other uh, diagnoses that uh, could lead to difficult IV access, but those are the top three. I couldn't agree with you more. In my experience, uh, the thing that I run into most of the time in the chronic illness category are hemodialysis patients who are totally uh, overlooked sometimes when it comes to the uh, to venous depletion and the long-term goals of maintaining their veins for surgical conduits for their dialysis. It's it's just amazing. I was telling you earlier before we got on the broadcast that not only uh, are patients more difficult uh, because of all the factors that you've mentioned, but the, the average patient who gets in the hospital now almost falls into a diva category because you have to be so sick to get into the hospital in the first place. Absolutely. You know, I, I catch myself telling people now that there's a finite number of places that you can have a, a vascular device. I don't know what that number is, but I know it's not unlimited. And certainly we need to be smart and proactive, especially with the patients with chronic illnesses that uh, we need to try to preserve for those devices that quite literally would be their lifeline one day. Yeah, I think dialysis in, in general is, is such a, uh, a prevalent disease, and when people say, well, I, that person's at a low risk for future need for hemodialysis, I don't think you can say that about anybody. Who knows who will be a candidate for dialysis in the future? Could be any one of us. Let's talk a little bit about why uh, we've already kind of discussed this, but I think it probably deserves some more emphasis, and that is why is ultrasound so important for visualization in, in your opinion, and how does it compare to other technologies that might be available. Ultrasound to me is a great revealer. You certainly takes all the guesswork out of what is going on. You know, it might be that when you pull out ultrasound that, you know, someone's attempted before and it's really difficult. You put ultrasound machine on them and there you have a very nice, large, sturdy vessel that's two centimeters deep and and there's a reason why that vein's still in good shape. It's unmolested. It hasn't been used before. And uh and that's really what ultrasound affords us. It it allows us to to get down below where the vessels have been used in, for previous insertions. It also allows us to guide the tip of the needle. You know, uh, some of the best IV inserters prior to ultrasound, you could almost watch them when they look away and they just palpate with their finger and they feel that vessel and they track that. And uh, and that seems to set them apart 
from the average person who can start an IV blindly. But with ultrasound, you actually get to see the tip of that needle and and watch it as that needle goes down through the skin and and into the vessel, and you can see it tint the vein, and you know now the tip of your needle is in the vessel, and you look for your blood return, and you can go ahead and advance it. So there's a reason why with ultrasound, your accuracy rate can be significantly better. Uh, the other thing is because you're able to see that tip of the needle, it, you can avoid backwalling the vessel and creating an area that disrupts the intima of the vein and creates a scenario where that patient would have a higher risk for venous thrombosis. You can measure the vein. You know, the, the newer ultrasound machines now have uh, very easy-to-use calipers so that you can look at the outer diameter of that vein and understand the outer diameter of the catheter selection that you have and choose the one that will get the job done but not be too large that it disrupts the flow and and again creates a situation where you could have a venous thrombosis. The nerves are visible with ultrasound, the bifurcation and the valves area of low flow. You know, there's eddies in and around those valves that we want to stay away from. So you can certainly uh, see where to terminate the catheter and choose a, a really good place to terminate the tip of the catheter as well so that it's not near a bifurcation or a valve. So it's a very, very long list of uh, how and why ultrasound is advantageous. You know, there's there's other technologies that are out there. The near-infrared technology we started to see uh, many years ago. And uh, and while some people have adopted that technology, uh, certainly are some limitations with it. You know, I have uh, pretty hairy arms, and uh, every time I put my arm underneath and look with one of those, uh, basically all I see uh, are the hairs. You can't tell the difference <laughs> typically between veins and arteries as well. Don't really know how deep they are. You know, for that reason, reason I think, uh, you know, reached a, a limited amount of usage and typically believe that uh, there's certainly this huge market now for ultrasound. And it's about time. You know, I, when I was in nursing school in 1994, I remember a lecture and one of the lectures was talking about technology. And they said, you know, one of the interesting things about technology in, in medicine is it takes about 17 years before the technology penetrates the market such that it's widely used and I thought that was a strange number and I, I didn't really believe it but here I am you know 25 years into the nursing career uh, my first ultrasound machine was made in 1999 so if we do the math I guess it is true that uh, we still have a lot of people that are not utilizing ultrasound and uh I'm just glad that we're at a point right now where ultrasound is more affordable, uh, more portable and accessible so that uh, people can use it in a larger scale. Yeah, I think you're really right about that 17 years. Uh, uh, unfortunately, you and I are old enough to have been around for 17 years in the medical field and then some, but it, it is really <laughs> remarkable how slow progress is in some areas in medicine. To make something to go from an exception to the norm is an is a Herculean task in American healthcare system sometimes. And we all know that ultrasound decreases complications. We know that it decreases costs in many different ways. We know that it increases patient satisfaction. And we know that as a operator with ultrasound uh, to do your vascular access, it gives you a level of confidence that you could never have just by using palpation or your own vision. And the thing that I like about that also is if it explains to you, number one, why sometimes you fail because you can see where the needle is and perhaps you just, like you said, you backwalled it or uh, you, uh, you know, you deflect it off of it a little bit. But it also allows you when you do get a complication, an unexpected uh, suboptimal result, it helps you to feel good about yourself. It allows you to appease your conscience that you did the very best you could. 
and used all the technology that was available. And let's be honest about it. We don't all uh, hit a home run every time we get up to the plate. We all have our complications. We all have our limitations. But at least you can say you can look the patient in the eye and say I did the very best I could for you. Yeah, you make a valid point. You know, it's a it's a wonderful feeling when you have an ultrasound machine and you've developed that skill over a period of time. And you know when you go in that room that you're going to have a, a really high success rate of placing that line or you're going to determine very quickly that they're not a candidate and that you need to refer them to interventional radiology to place something else. Yeah, it's and for you in the listening world who haven't utilized ultrasound or perhaps have used it in a very limited fashion, you'd be amazed at what you can see with an ultrasound machine these days. They've gotten so good and the price keeps coming down for the units, but you can hit small lesions, for example, with biopsies in the liver or in the kidney that might be three or four millimeters in size and still accurately hit them to get results. Uh, it's just fantastic. And I, there's no end in sight as far as I can see. Uh, no pun intended, by the way. So let's review some of the guidance uh, for the use of ultrasound, if you wouldn't mind going through that with us a bit. Well, you know, many experts agree that ultrasound is the way to go. I mean, if you look at some of the organizations that guide clinical practice, um, INS, Emergency Nurses Association, AVA, the CDC, uh, American College of Emergency Physicians, NIH, American Society of Anesthesiologists, and the list goes on that everyone agrees the ultrasound guidance is the way to go for patient satisfaction, for efficiency, and for safety. So uh, I think at, we're at a point now where we just realize, okay, how can we make ultrasound such that people can get their hands on it, that they're, they're, they have multiple machines at their, at their disposal so they don't have to wait for a machine to get their hands on, uh, that they're a lot more portable, you know, I envision uh, someone with uh, with a little kit that has their IV catheters in it in an emergency department situation, and right there in that kit is an ultrasound. And that person has had a an ultrasound training program that was brought to their hospital by many of the the different organizations that provide the training. You know, that that is uh, one of the things we've learned how to do is to shorten the learning curve for ultrasound. Ultrasound is very vague in some regards and, and difficult for people to understand when they first start looking at it. And the ultrasound machines of the past had 20 or 30 buttons on it. So if you didn't use it every day, all of a sudden it's time to use that ultrasound. I mean, where do I start? So now we're starting to see ultrasound made simple you know machines are much more streamlined with a lot less buttons they're easier to to purchase they're easier to move around the hospital and uh, certainly the education programs are available even online education programs several people have mentioned in the past that they foresee a time when the ultrasound device will be as prevalent, ubiquitous as the stethoscope itself, and perhaps be an, another version of a, of a the stethoscope in regards to how it allows you to see into patients and be just as necessary for patient care as the stethoscope. And I really do believe that. It's just a, it's going to take more time. It's going to take the price coming down even further and simplification of the product. And then the thing that you've been alluding to is and the most difficult thing to do, and that is the training. Yeah. Training and how to how to start a vascular access program in your own hospital, and these are going to be uh, these are complex issues. They're difficult to answer, but I think that they're possibly uh, able to be answered uh, even today. And if we don't start working on it today, we'll never have it available tomorrow. That's for sure. Well, I want to thank you so much for answering all of my questions. I really uh, thank you for your dedication, and I'm so so proud of you and uh, your passion shows through and so does your wisdom yes, thanks sir thank you thank you hey welcome back everyone to episode three of the i save that podcast i'm eric sager java editor-in-chief 
And I'm joined today by Brent Burbage, a radiologist from the University of Saskatchewan uh, for the Beyond the Manuscripts segment. And Brent and I are going to chat a little bit about uh, his upcoming JAVA article set to publish in the spring issue of JAVA titled Venus Doppler Ultrasound Findings Three Months After Arm Port Implantation, Thrombosis by Port Type Within a Randomized Controlled Trial. How are you doing today, Brent? Good, thanks. I appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me a little bit about your manuscript. And, and in your manuscript, you and your team analyzed you know, 211 oncology patients that received either a power injectable port or a non-power injectable port. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went through and selected these patients and, and kind of what led you to start researching this data and recording it for your trial? Sure. Thanks very much for having me on your podcast. I appreciate your interest in our work. and. Absolutely. I've been involved in implanting venous access devices for a long time as a radiologist in Saskatoon, and we we initially started using arm ports back in the late 90s. So we've had a lot of experience with arm ports, and we've seen the ups and downs of different designs and different applications for the device. And the push for for power injection seemed to be a very overwhelming theme from some of our clinical team members and so we had an opportunity to to look at this issue in a selected group of patients who have malignancies and needed mm-hmm. ports for treatment so the, it was quite a big project and in my career I've never done a randomized clinical trial and and so it you know it was a bit of a project to put together all the different elements that we sure. needed to fulfill to do a proper randomized clinical trial. And so what we did is we, we went through all those steps and we gathered uh, data on patients utilizing that methodology. And it was anybody who was willing to consent, of course, we had to go through mm-hmm. a rigorous consent process. And people right. realized that they were going to be randomized to one port type or the other. And we fulfilled that requirement with uh, the help of our statistician colleagues. And, and so, we, you know, when it comes to looking at these types of devices, we wanted to try to gather as much data and as much information as we could. And so we wanted to look at application of ultrasound to determine if patients were experiencing venous thrombosis despite uh, their clinical situation. So we applied a three-month protocol where we said to the patients that they would voluntarily admit to have an ultrasound because it was clinically apparently not a necessary exam at the time. Mm-hmm. So we said to them, we would appreciate it very much if you would book a voluntary ultrasound at three months and we can have a look and see what's happening with the device and the veins that the device and the catheter are in. That was reasonably successful. Out of the 211 subjects, we had 140 people who agreed to come back for the voluntary Doppler ultrasound. And that's where we that's where we moved into starting to analyze this venous thrombosis data for the different devices. Right. And what exactly, you know, did you guys find? I know you did some analysis with the thrombus characteristics by port type. How did you go through that and and without getting into too much of the the weeds and the nitty-gritty details cuz all that is in your manuscript and we encourage everyone to check that out when the spring issue comes out next month. Uh, what, what exactly did you find? Well, we were really quite surprised with the the outcomes of the, the ultrasound examinations uh, of the group of people that received the ultrasound, the 140 patients, two of them came earlier than the three-month suggested appointment because they had clinical symptoms. But the remaining 138 subjects didn't have any clinical symptoms, and they attended at the three-month period. And so, the two subjects that were symptomatic with arm swelling or arm redness both had venous thrombosis. But then it turned out that amongst the 138 who didn't have symptoms, a substantial number of them did end up having unsuspected, not clinically determinable venous thromboses of different categories. So 19 subjects in the asymptomatic group had some form of venous thrombosis related to their port device. Oh, wow. So it... That took us a little bit by surprise, to be honest. And when you look at different, you know, reporting of complications using venous access devices, most of the previous research has relied upon patients being symptomatic and then having some method to detect the thrombosis after they develop symptoms. So we were a little bit surprised at how many subjects were asymptomatic at the three-month period. Without 
those surprises factoring into it. I know you mentioned this was your the first controlled uh, clinical trial that you yourself took part in. Were there any other issues or hurdles that you and your team faced while completing it? Or were there like any limitations that you had to deal with? Well, no, I think I think it was a well-organized project and um, uh, we had a good team of people working together. And that's always a hard part of any kind of project is right. yeah. <laughs> getting the team members on board and everybody functioning efficiently. And, and it was, um, I thought it was, it went very well. One component of the major study, which was outside of the concept of this venous thrombosis uh, data, was that we had. Uh, we applied a, a computer application to allow the patients to report any problems they were having. So cool. I think that in that regard, that was a rather novel or a unique thing where we, we set up a website and we gave the patients an identity number and a log, login and a username and password. And, and so if the patients were having any concerns or were thought they were experiencing any complications, they could log into this site and enter in through a pull-down menu list, what types of troubles they were having. And then myself, as the principal researcher, I would be notified when those complications or problems arose and we could deal with them at a patient level. And I think that what that did is it, it helped us to gather you know, higher quality data that we might right. have otherwise missed out on if the patients weren't allowed to self-report. So I think in, in that regard, I think that really helped us to get good quality data. But the thing that is a little bit frustrating in these types of projects is when you make a, a request for patients to do things voluntarily, like voluntarily come back for their venous Doppler ultrasound. You know, it's it's interesting that, you know, people don't participate in that. And, and I think part of that is is that patients have challenges in their lives. They have a major illness. Sure. They have transportation issues. They have overall health issues and you know, family issues. So, so I, I think that even despite all those challenges, we were quite pleased with the number of people who actually volunteered to come back and have their ultrasound done. It sounds like a really innovative project, especially with allowing those patients to self-report things, you know, from their home or wherever they are continuing mm -hmm. their care. That's that's, that's right. pretty up. It's pretty awesome. Then uh, I have one last question for you. What would you like your readers to take away uh, from this trial after they read it in Java? Well, the, you know, the issue with with venous thrombosis is is very interesting. And, it, you know, there's always some su suggestion that those in asymptomatic thrombi really don't contribute to any clinical problems for the patients. But I don't think one can say that with certainty. I don't think there's enough work or enough research that's been done to say, you know, what is the fate of these undetected, clinically unsuspected thrombi? And I think that's an area in venous access devices we have to become a little bit more sensitized to. And we have to determine, you know, where, where on the scale of risk do some of these subjects fall in terms of can they develop further complications from these venous thrombi? So, so I think it's mm -hmm. it's certainly an area of work that we're we're wanting to try to look into in a little bit more detail and and gather a larger uh, data set of patients where we can look at their venous thrombus status despite them being asymptomatic. So I think that's certainly some work we're going to look at doing in the future to try to get a better handle on what the implication of all this is. Very cool. And it, it sounds like you and your team are doing some really needed work in the land of vascular access. So I wanted to thank you for hopping on the podcast with me and submitting your manuscript to Java. And as I mentioned before, readers can expect that in the spring issue of Java, which is due out in March. And the paper is titled Venus Doppler Ultrasound Findings Three Months After Arm Port Implantation, Thrombosis by Port Within a Randomized Controlled Trial. He is Brent Burbage, a radiologist from the University of Saskatchewan. Brent, thanks so much for joining me today. Excellent. Thanks very much for your interest. And I hope the readers find the manuscript useful and uh, we can move on to bigger and better things. Hi everyone, Eric here again with a quick preview on the AVA Network events on schedule for the final two weeks of February. A trio of meetings are scheduled for Wednesday, February 20th. CoVan welcomes Amy Barton-Spencer to Loveland, Colorado for a discussion on device selection criteria from peripheral access to acute central venous access titled The Right Line for the Right Patient at the Right Time. In Memphis, Tennessee, Michelle Biscassi presents on decreased vascular access complications and their positive impacts on patients, clinicians, and settings at Midsvan. And also on the 20th, Reed Nishikawa visits Norvan 
in Sacramento for a dinner and a presentation on ethanol lock therapy and CLABSI, recent developments in dosing safety and efficacy. The next night at the Wakeman's Community Room in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, CPAN will provide dinner for a discussion on hot topics in vascular access, while Dr. Jack Ledun entertains CVAN in Fresno with a conversation on reducing CLABSI and the relationship between insertion care and maintenance. On Saturday, February 23rd in Columbus, Ohio, Govan takes on the opioid epidemic with an all-day educational and interactive conference featuring five speakers. Breakfast, lunch, and a snack will be provided, as well as multiple CEs. And to close out February, Chattavan is scheduled to host a network meeting on Tuesday the 26th, while Sojan invites you to its meeting and vendor fair on Wednesday the 27th in Mount Laurel, New Jersey where attendees can get up to speed on the latest products, research, and samples that are available. Also on the 27th, Mike Brazunas visits CBA Van in Baltimore for their first network meeting of 2019. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thank you again to Angiodynamics for sponsoring this episode of the I Save That podcast. And thanks to our interviewees, Jack Ingold and Dr. Brent Burbage for joining us. As always, thanks to Dabney Coleman and happy Valentine's Day, everyone. The information discussed on the I Save That podcast is solely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information that we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this video or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.